0: Um, So by trade, I I am a teacher, Uh, and if anyone, uh, sorry, Uh, and those of us who work in education right now, it's it's a really kind of key time of the year, Uh, because in just a few months' time, our students are going to be sitting some assessments, Uh, be they SATs, GCSEs, A-levels, final exams, they're just a handful of weeks away, Uh, and for some of you out there, I know that affects, I'm afraid, there's nothing you can do about it, they are coming. And you see, our job as teachers and lecturers is to make sure our students are ready, to make sure that they're prepared. We make sure that we've we've clearly taught and explained everything that they need to know. We we challenge them when they need to be challenged. Uh, We make sure they recognize the significance of what they're doing. And most importantly, we support and we encourage them. And John prepares the people For the most awesome event that they will ever encounter. That's not to say exams are particularly awesome, Uh, but he's preparing the people for the most awesome event that they will ever encounter in the same way. He teaches them, he challenges them, he offers advice, and he offers them hope. He teaches them that they need Jesus. He challenges them to live in a way that shows they recognize that need. He gives them practical ways to do so, and he points them to what Jesus will do. It's not an easy lesson. I mean, his lesson plan is given to us in verse 2. Have a look at it. It says that he preached baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But there is something there that's perhaps even more challenging than that. I mean, when I trained to be a teacher, we, we were taught to start our lessons with a cheerful, friendly starter. Something that's an activity to get everyone settled, give them confidence, uh, make them feel welcome. John's starter activity is a little bit different. Have a look in verse seven. He says to the crowds, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Perhaps I'll start my year 11 lesson tomorrow with that line and see what happens. But this is where it really gets properly challenging. This is why we need Jesus. God is awesome, powerful, and loving, yes. But his wrath is truly awful. So as we read this passage, we will find some bits are gonna be quite hard to swallow but it's important that we take note. That little bit of Isaiah at the beginning uh, that Luke quotes from in verses three to six, that's Isaiah 40. Well, the first verses of Isaiah 40, that little bit is prefaced like this. I think we've got a slide for that um, with the words. It says this, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. The message that we're reading today is part of God's plan that should comfort us. Everything that happens in this passage was promised hundreds of years before it happened. And the message that it brings, however challenging, is one in which we should find comfort It's a message where we're gonna see both the awesome power of God and his all-encompassing grace. So the challenge for us here in Surbiton today, just as it was for God's listeners in the Jordan Valley, is how do we respond to the promises that we find? Do we repent, seek to bear fruit for his kingdom, trusting in him alone, Or do we allow ourselves to get swept up in the chaotic world around us and live as though Jesus never came to save us from it? John's ministry here is effectively, how do you respond to Jesus 101? Let's dig in and have a look. Uh, So the world back then was just as messed up as it is now. We, We do get a glimpse of that, as Tim mentioned in the opening verses. It's into this world of little kingdoms and corruption that John comes, preaching that something radically different is about to happen. Change is coming. Change that cannot and should not be ignored. Valleys will be filled in. Mountains will be leveled. And in verse 6, all people will see God's salvation. Sounds pretty awesome, right? John's got some other ideas in there as well, though. You see, God's people need a wake-up call before all this is going to happen. You see, they might be Abraham's children, and maybe they're thinking of that verse in Jeremiah, uh, chapter 30, verse 22, where God promised his people, you will be my people, and I will be your God. But it's not as straightforward as that. John says there's more to it. You see, they might think they're special, They may even have been to temple recently, offered the appropriate sacrifices, fulfilled all that was required by the law. But have a look at verse 8. He says to them, "'Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, "'and do not say to yourself, "'We have Abraham as our father. "'For I tell you, out of these stones, "'God can raise up children for Abraham.'" Soon, John says, the privilege of being one of God's people is not just going to be limited to the descendants of Abraham, something that's good news for us today. But the implication of John's word to the people listening then is that they are really not living like they are God's people. They are not living like they are Abraham's children. If they properly understood what it is to repent, then their lives should look very different. I mean, we're now living in a time after Jesus' death and resurrection. But we still need to hear that same message. Yes, we are God's people. And yes, Jesus died for our sins and was raised again. But would someone we just met ever realize that? Do our lives look totally different as a result of accepting that amazing truth? I mean, the baptism that John preached, uh, we still use in the church today. And it symbolizes that when we're immersed or when we have water sprinkled on our forehead, that we put to death our old sinful lives and that rising out of the water, we are renewed in Christ. When we are baptized, when we become God's children, something in us should change. And it should be obvious to the world around us. Uh, but if we're honest, that's, that's not always uh, our lived experience. Can I have the next slide? It's, it's a bit like this. It's a bit like taking a Mini and then attaching a jet engine to it. There we go, we've got a Mini with a jet engine. But still only driving at 20 miles an hour because we're just afraid of standing out, of being different. If at our heart we are truly different, then it ought to be self-evident in the way that we live our lives. And so John has some practical advice for us. How how do we actually live out this change? And the crowd asked that exact question of John, and he answers them in verse 11. He says, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. No, this, is, this isn't just directed at rich people, people who have got more than they need. He doesn't say anyone with too much food should share, or you know, anyone who, when they've finished eating, has got something left over, they should share. No, he's saying anyone with food should share. And while back then most people would have only had one shirt that they would wear under their coat, if you were out traveling and you could afford it, especially at night, You might wear two shirts just to keep you warm. And is that true for us? Are we really prepared to give up our comforts to help those who have nothing? Do we give just something, however small it is, because we know that we should be giving? Or is there something determined, something thoughtful and heartfelt about the way in which we give? And it's not just material giving that John talks about. This is about practical help, making sure that everyone's needs are met. I don't know how you uh, feel about the length of church services, but I mean, how does 96 days sound for you for a church service? Um, I found this story a few months ago in the New York Times. Um, I've got a slide for that. And it's a story about a church in the Netherlands. Netherlands. and they wanted to do something practical to support a refugee family um, at risk of being deported. And they took advantage of a Dutch law that forbids the police from interrupting a church service. And there were clergy and congregants from all over Europe who took part just to keep this service going for 96 days. People gave up their time, they traveled to The Hague where this church is located, they prayed and they worshiped with this family. This is a church who saw a need and in an outstanding way sought to meet it. Now, we might not always be able to provide such a service, pun intended, but there are always ways that we can give practically. We can give of our time. And there are plenty of ministries here at Christchurch, both midweek and on Sundays, that need volunteers. And of course, Steve mentioned Holiday Club earlier. Um, And perhaps there's even a new need that you've seen in our community, a ministry that we as church could provide, if only someone was able to stand up and lead it. So, if that's you, um, sorry. If that's you, please can I encourage you to play with someone and ask, is that something that God is placing on your heart? And it's not just about sort of church ministry. There are a myriad of smaller, practical ways that we can help others. Even if it's just taking the time to seek out that colleague at work who knows that who you know just needs to hear something positive, that everything is going to be OK, or taking the time to pick up the phone to call that person who just needs to hear a friendly voice. And then John gets even more countercultural. He tells the the tax collectors not to collect any more than they needed to and the soldiers to be content with their wages, and not to extort people. This was common practice at the time. Uh, The tax collectors were working for the Romans and the corrupt rulers, and they would get paid by a percentage of the tax that they collected. So they'd just collect a little bit more, and bump up their own earnings a little bit. See, he's challenging these people to live in a way that is against the culture of the time, just because there might be an opportunity to take advantage of the system. And everyone else around you getting stuck in, he's saying, don't be a part of it. Stand separate. See, if we're truly God's people, if we have truly repented of our sins, then we should seek to live our lives in a way that will bear fruit for God's kingdom. But none of this is easy. I mean, where's the good news? Remember, all of this is meant to bring us comfort. And I'll be honest, when I was preparing this sermon and I got to this part of the passage, I was actually feeling a little bit more judged than comforted. I mean, what had actually happened is, is I'd fallen into the trap of legalism. I'd sort of read this and gone, right, so I'm a Christian. I've got all of these things that I need to do. I need to follow every one of these lest my tree be felled into the fire. So... Let's think of it another way. I was baptized when I was 11 months old. So there's been quite a lot of room since I was baptized for me to get things wrong, and I definitely have. But here's the difference. When I was christened at 11 months old, I was christened with water. And that's something that even John in this passage recognized was just symbolic. You see, I was really baptized when I was 16, when I was baptized by the Spirit that moment that I was standing in Trafalgar Square at the end of the Soul in the City celebration, the moment that I truly accepted Jesus in my life and became a Christian. Have a look at verse 16. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you, with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there's something almost temporary about water. I mean, that's not to say that the baptism that we practice as a church is temporary or or unimportant. It's a a vital way that we as Christians make a statement to the world that we are renewed in Christ. And if that might be the right thing for you to do, if you've not taken that step yet, I think do catch up with John and have a talk to him if that's right. But we do recognize that the action of baptism is symbolic. In and of itself, it does not have the power to purify us from our sins. Only Jesus can do that. And he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire does something so much more permanent, much more final than water. See, when Isaiah encounters God in the throne room in Isaiah chapter 6... This is what um, Isaiah says. He says, "Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Then one of the seraphim flew to him with a live coal in his hands, and he had taken, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched Isaiah's mouth and said, "See, this has touched your lips; your guilt is taken away." your sin is atoned for. Fire seems to have much more power than water. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the price for our sin. He took our guilt, and nothing that we can do, or fail to do for that matter, will ever change that. So even if we mess up, and we will, there will be times when we say and do the wrong things. There may be times when we don't give as generously or as sacrificially as we could. Our lives might not be that picture-perfect Christian existence, but we will still be filled with the Holy Spirit. We will still be purified by fire. The best that we can do in response to Jesus is to strive to live as Christ-like as we can, knowing that we will fall short. Um, but that's the point. That's why we need grace in the first place. See, we deserve God's wrath. We we are a brood of vipers. But the promise here, as it is throughout the Bible, is all we have to do is to repent, to trust Jesus. Through his death on the cross and resurrection to life three days later, our sins are paid for. We are forgiven. That is final. Our response to that, we should just be trying to live our lives in such a way that this amazing truth is evident to the world around us. Cool. I'm going to pray for us. Um, uh, just as sort of we, we come to a close here. Father, thank you so much that you sent your son to die for us on the cross, so that we might be spared your wrath, that we might be forgiven. And we pray as we sit here today that your spirit will fill us anew, that it will work in our hearts and give us the strength to live as you call us.